comes above the den It's hard to know if this will Welcome to episode 408 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Catonsville, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, I'm Carlos Welch. And we will be joined today by Salo Costa, who I imagine was in Brazil. He is he is Brazilian. I guess we didn't actually verify with him that he was in Brazil during the call. But uh, Salo is a, a professional poker player from Brazil. He makes content for Run It Once for GTO Wizard. Uh, he has his own YouTube channel now, and we'll talk to him some about that. And then he also has a huge stable of like 200 people that he's uh, staking and in some cases coaching. So yeah, really big player in the the poker world. And one of the things I, I mentioned to him was this is a, a guest who is suggested to us by a, a few listeners, uh, and I had not heard of him before and yeah he was just fantastic on, on all fronts like a really and it just it, it blows my mind how big the poker world and some of it is like the poker world being international but i'm sure there's like some americans who would fall in this category too who, who i wouldn't have heard of um who you know are just like they're great guests for the show and just like very talented players where it's like how is this there's this like amazing poker player out there and i like had no idea that he existed yeah yeah so uh i first heard of him um it was like about a year ago now. I'm actually checking my email. Um, um, Keith Dunlap, who was a guest on a previous episode, suggested um, Solo. And we eventually got around to it. And boy, was it uh, a good interview to talk to him. Um, yeah, he was he was great. And it's, it's crazy. Like, you got him, you got Caitlin. Like, there's these people out there that are just, like, great people to talk to in poker. And, like... You know, for their their life stories or their personalities or just like just so much good. Like the thing that blew me away with Solo is like how great he is at teaching poker. Yeah. It's like you would think that you would have heard of him, you know, given that we're in that same space. But man, just makes me wonder, you know, how much more of our competition we should be afraid of. <laughs> They're coming for us. <laughs> and we're helping them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But no, I'm I'm happy to help him. He seemed like a really nice guy. Yeah, yeah. Like so, I didn't know much about him other than the fact that you know Keith had mentioned him, and then I attended some of his coaching session, sessions on GTO Wizard. But doing things like audio over Zoom, where you're not seeing the face or you're just seeing like um, screenshots, if it's not uh, or screen shares, if it's not audio, you get one feel from the coach. But when you get to you know, watch them teach over YouTube and you can see their face and you can see the time they take into uh, presenting information in a way that's not just good, but also entertaining. Like, yeah, his YouTube channel was great. And I was like, okay, this is, this is my guy. Like, I like, I like his stuff a lot. So I was very happy to talk to him. Needless to say, there's plenty of strategy talk in the um, interview. So I actually have had an idea that I, something that I wanted to do on a, a strategy segment uh, on here for a couple of weeks now, and this seems like the perfect time to to do it. Uh, so I've been playing this game um, called Marvel Snap. It's like a phone sort of game. Um, a little, I don't know how meaningful this will be to you, Carlos. It's a little like um, Hearthstone. Do you know what that is? I've heard of it, and I've seen Daniel Negreanu play it on Twitch. 
but I have no idea how to play it. All right. You know what? Uh, magic, like magic cards. Yes, I've heard of those. And I talked to um, Bill Bloom, who I think created magic. Uh, I hope I'm not mixing that with something else that he created. Yeah. But, uh, Richard Garfield is the magic guy. Yeah, he has something. To, he's he's one of the big guys that has something to do with it. I met him at a TPE meetup a couple of years ago. Oh, that's I remember you mentioning that. Yeah, yeah, I th- I th- he he might have been part of that cohort because yeah, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah. So again, I I've heard of the game. I even met the guy who you know was involved in creating the game, but I don't know how to play it personally. Okay, so it it doesn't matter super much for for these purposes, but there's this whole genre that Magic created, which are called like trading card games or collectible card games, where you uh, rather than just getting you know like ordinarily if you bought like a board game or something like you'd get all the pieces and you'd just play. And the way these things is kind of a cross between like a collectible and a game where you can buy like packs of cards or Marvel snaps, it's a little bit different how you get the cards, but you, you can acquire more cards and add them to your collection. And as you do, you can like make more different combinations of, of, uh, decks and so you choose from your entire collection you choose like 12 cards that you're going to play in your in your deck and then that kind of determines like what you can do on on your turns and you know there's all sorts of different interactions between the cards and, and things like that so magic was around for a long time and that was like a juggernaut in this in this space it's like basically created this entire new genre of games and then more recently stuff like hearthstone has come along that's kind of like magic like magic like i've not really been tempted to get back i was into it as a kid but like as an adult it's just like way too much to to get into it's like a huge thing it's very expensive to to get into it and there's like literally the tens of thousands of cards like it's it's just an enormous enormous undertaking so i the stuff like hearthstone has been um very successful at kind of making that more more bite-sized and and approachable the significant thing about uh, marvel snap and why it's relevant for a a poker um, podcast is that there's actually kind of a gambling element to it, which is where the, the name Snap comes from. So this is actually, I think, kind of based on like a doubling cube from uh, Backgammon is is where I'm most familiar with this coming up, which is that there's these cubes within the game, which are kind of like how you get new new cards. They're sort of like, uh, they're not quite a currency, but something along those lines for, for getting new cards. And when you play a match, you and your opponent each wager a cube. And each player has the opportunity to double the stakes once. So you can choose to say like, Hey, let's, let's play for two cubes. And then your opponent can either decide to continue and and keep playing the game or they can, it's called retreating. Uh, They can retreat and then you just win their cube and then the game is over. So right away, like that's kind of like, you know, you're like making a bet and your opponent can either call or fold if you do that. Uh, And then they also have, they're allowed to raise the stakes once. And then also if you go, so the game plays out for six rounds and you each play your cards every round. And then you you can double depending on like how the the game is developing. If you feel like things are are going well for you, you can choose to double the stakes or choose to retreat if they're not going well for you and your opponent tries to double the stakes. But if you do play the game out until the very end, the stakes automatically double. So you could end up with as much as eight cubes that you're playing for. If you you double and your opponent doubles and then you go to showdown, it doubles again. So you know, you're always going to play for at least two if you don't retreat before the very end. Uh, does that all make sense? So does, does the part about the cube uh, and the doubling make sense? Um, kind of. Kind of. I'm not a games player in that way, so this is going to be diff- more difficult for me than it would be for most players that got into poker because they're a games person. I'm just here for the money, man. 
<laughs> well, I guess just like imagine we're playing any game that you're familiar, like football. You know? Okay. So in a, in a game, if at any point during a game of football, you could say to your opponents, like, uh, if you, so you're already playing for some amount of, of money or some something is at stake, and you could say to your opponents, like, hey, let's either double the stakes or you quit now and I automatically win. Right. Gotcha. Uh, so okay. that's kind of the same, like at, at any point in the game, if you, if you just like the way things are developing for you, or arguably as a bluff, if you you know think that maybe things look scary, but it's actually not as bad as it, as it might be, like you you could threaten to raise the stakes, and then your opponent would have to either accept the raised stakes or quit. Just like in poker, you know, if you bet, your opponent can either call and have still have a chance of winning, or they can fold and just forfeit whatever is in the pot. Okay, that makes sense to me. Yes. So what I found kind of interesting about this, especially when I first started playing, this has become a little less true because they try to match you against players of similar skill. So like, as I've gotten a little bit better, I'm playing against better players, but especially initially when I was playing against like very poor players, everyone was too loose and too passive. Like <laughs> they, the other people would like very rarely double the stakes and like, God help you if they ever did, like <laughs> no matter how good things looked for you, if they ever were like, Hey, let's double the stakes. Like it's not that they've got something up their sleeve. Like they just, they would never offer to double the stakes unless they were like, felt very, very good about their, their position. And there would still be the problem of like, maybe they're just terrible. And like, they, but like, they're not bluffing, you know, like they, they think that they're doing very well. And then you have to figure out like, do they actually know what they're doing or are they just like misassessing their, their thing? Um, and then, but also people would like be way, way, way too willing. So I tried once or twice. I was like, oh, bluffing should be a part of this game, right? Like I understand how, how wagering works. And like, there should be some situations where it looks like a very sketchy, uh, scary situation to my opponent. And if they're doing a little bit of hand reading, they might be able to deduce like what card I might be expecting to play. I don't actually have that card in my hand. I didn't draw it, but they would have to worry that I did draw it. And so like, maybe they'll get to concede because my position looks scary, even though I'm not actually able to, to win the game and um uh, no they do not do that <laughs> uh, no no one ever falls and i've seen people accept you know accept doubles and then just where like i didn't even have like i thought i was bluffing and then i would win anyway because like their their final play was that bad that like even though i didn't actually have what i thought i was representing they like were still not able to win the game and i was like how did i win that so i, I, just, I just thought it was funny that i was like re-experiencing this thing from poker of like i had the idea like hey maybe i could do this fancy thing where i like essentially like double the stakes as a bluff and then immediately my opponents were like nope we're way too loose that's not going to work on us <laughs> so this sounds like you know ignition to me where like people are just like not even i don't know if they're like not trying to win or they're just so oblivious to correct strategy that even like in their mind they're trying to win but they just have no idea what correct strategy would look like i imagine that those are the type of players you encounter in this game as well i think so and, and part of it is that you know of course we're, we're not playing for real money like these what i don't know what exactly the cash value of a cube would be but it'll probably be pennies like it's not uh it's not something that people are really that compelled to to take seriously um so it's it, it is kind of like playing playing micro stakes there's also a lot of ego wrapped up in this so you will sometimes see like you you double and then your opponent immediately like doubles back and they're just like, just insulted that you like thought you were winning so now it's like a game of chicken to see who who um stops doubling first each person can only double once. So that, ah, there's actually, there's gotcha. a little bit of strategy around that also of like, you don't necessarily want to double immediately. It's just like we, the, at the first hint that you might be winning because you're not going to have the opportunity to double again later. Ah, 
Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think in, in backgammon where this originated, there's even a component of one person has the doubling cube and only that person can double. But once you do, then you're giving it to your opponent and they're going to have the opportunity to double later. So like if you have the doubling cube, um, one of the consequences of you doubling is you're going to have to give me the cube. And so that's like an additional, um, not only are you losing the ability to double yourself, but you're giving me the ability to double later. And so that has to like factor into your decision. That's not a component of this game, but just while we're on the subject of doubling cubes. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, there's not really a strategy there, but I just thought that was a fun uh, observation. Yeah. Was, well, then this is based on like, like Marvel heroes, right? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So that that's like the theme of of the game. Like the, the cards are all heroes from the the Marvel universe. It was funny is like if I understand correctly, like you're not a big fan of like Marvel movies and stuff like that. No, I, I don't even really know who most. Of, like I I was <laughs> there was maybe a year or two when I was a kid that I was like reading some Marvel comic books and stuff. So I'm like vaguely familiar with some of these characters and like I know them a little bit from popular culture or whatever. I think I've seen like one of the X Men movies. I saw the first Black Panther movie. That's it for for my like consumption of the Marvel universe. I do think it's a very well designed game. Um, I like the doubling aspect of it. I think just in general compared. Like I, I have played Hearthstone. I played Magic at one time. I do think even relative to those games, which are pretty well-designed games, I think it's a very, very well-designed game. And I do know some other poker players who play it, which is how I just like seeing people talk about it on Twitter was how I got curious about it. But no, my interest in it has nothing at all to do with the, the Marvel theme. And I bet you the majority of the people who play it, that's why they play it, because they like Iron Man. And now they're up against some poker genius <laughs> who's trying to like outthink them when they're just showing up to try to have fun. Yeah, that is kind of a lot like uh, playing against recreational poker players. Yeah, except that many of them are like 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's funny. That's super funny. And now they're beating me because now I'm up against different players. <laughs> You'll learn. You'll learn. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk to uh, Salo Costa about the even more well-designed game of poker. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Salo, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to talk to you. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Andrea, for inviting me. Carlos, very nice to be here and exchanging ideas. It, it kind of blows my mind because we had a, f a few people who have um, suggested you as, as a guest for the show. And, and I'm ashamed to say that I had, had not heard of you prior to them suggesting. And then as soon as I watched some of your material, I was like, oh, yeah, this guy is great. And it really just because yeah. I mean, I've been been playing poker now for like close to, to 20 years, seriously, for like 15 years. And it kind of used to be that, like, I at least knew by name most of the people who were <laughs> like big, you know, big names in, in poker. And then there's oh, this guy and he has like a stable of 200 people and he makes all this like really great <laughs> content. And I've like never heard of him before and it's just it, it, it's amazing to me that uh how, how big the poker world has become yeah it's been huge like i can even <laughs> i can even begin to understand that i actually staked 200 people because we've gone so fast and it's really crazy i haven't been in the in the industry for so long so you know it's it's really crazy it's really big industry yeah so how long like what what is your your origin story all right so Let's go back six, yeah, almost seven years now. I started at, no, yeah, exactly seven years. I started at 2016 playing microstakes. Before that, I was a software programmer. I was still a 
still in, the, in college. I was in fourth year in college for computer engineering, but then and was that I started in, to quit in college. Brazil? You went to college? Yes, in Brazil. Yes, exactly. So I'm from Brazil. And um, I was actually in a top university here. Like it's a top 100 university in the entire world. So it was a really sick spot. I, I had anything that I needed to have a successful career as a programmer, but I didn't feel particularly happy about it or excited about it. So I decided to quit and pursue poker. And this was 2016. And then I started playing microstakes and quickly moved up the ranks. So I started at 5NL. And two years after that, I was already playing 200 now and taking shots 500 now. And things went great for me. Like, luckily, I didn't have to go back to college because that would be really, really bad. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's been a, an amazing journey so far. So it's been a professional for the last seven years. How did how did poker come onto your radar in the first place? Like, was it something you grew up playing? No, not at all. Like I was always a nutty kid. So I always liked strategy games and board games. I would play that a lot, but I only got to know poker when I was 17, I believe. No, it was 2013. So yeah, I was 19. So I was 19 years old. And this friend of mine just introduced me to the game. He he used to play with his girlfriend. He said, oh, I know this awesome game. We should play together. And I was like, oh, yes, show me. And then we started playing and I instantly got addicted to it, like instantly got extremely hooked and <laughs> played every day. I would invite friends to my house to play every day and would uh, watch videos and uh, read articles and all that stuff. So I was I was instantly hooked and uh, it was an amazing time, like all the nostalgia of having fun with friends, but at the same time, discovering the game from scratch was really, really amazing. And taking your friend's money while you're at it. <laughs> Actually, in the beginning, I was like a super nit. Like I was really, really needy. So I, I would basically most sessions I would break even. And then occasionally I would win a few bucks. But I was like not into really risking too much money at that time. So it, unfortunately, I didn't make too much money off my friends at that time. That was always the joke because I like hosted home games when I was in high school and college, and I it was just like obvious that I was getting more and more into the game than my friends were, and I would like have all these poker books in my bookshelves and stuff, and people would like comment on it. They're like, "What are you inviting us over here for exactly? <laughs> <laughs> you want to take our money?" <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I would always host the games. That was something interesting, I guess. Uh, most of my friendships they would revolve around being at my place so most of my friends would come to my place i would rarely go to my friend's place so i would always host the games and we would be playing like for seven eight hours straight and looking back now my parents were probably mad because had these six seven kids every single day in their house <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty cool what were the games that you grew up playing like before you got into poker uh i used to play a card game called Yu-Gi-Oh. not sure if you guys know it yeah, you're, you're the second Yu-Gi-Oh! pro that we've had on here. Cool. Not, not pro, but you know, the second serious Yu-Gi-Oh! player we've had on. No, I was, I was really serious. Like, I would, well, I would basically grind it, play with my friends, and buy decks and build decks, and eventually signed up to a few competitions. I wasn't great at it, but I was really hooked into it. And apart from that, I loved board games. Like, War was a game that I would play very much. Strategy board game. And then mostly console games. Console games were not very strategy-minded, but you know, 
I was really into games. So whatever I could find, I would I would play a little. What was the last kind of game you said? Cone style? No, console. Uh, oh, oh, oh I, I got you. Like uh, yeah. video games. Yeah. yeah, video games. Normal video okay. games. Yeah, like yeah. Okay. PS2, PS3, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so you're getting into poker in like 2016 through 2018 was sort of your your rise in poker? Yeah, yeah. Before that, it was mostly recreational, just playing home games. And then in the end of 2015, I quit college. And then I really started grinding serious beginning of 2016 at MicroStakes. What was your, your process for getting better? What were the resources you were using? I used almost entirely right once at the time. I was basically grinding the forums there and watching the videos. And I would eventually get free membership there from like they, they had this promotion. I'm not sure if they still have it where if you win the most points in the forums for the month, you get a free membership for their top tier, which is elite. Mm-hmm. So I would constantly get this, this this free membership to watch videos and I would watch like tons and tons of videos and discuss hands and forums. That would be basically where I got all my first um, content in, in poker strategy. When did you start making content for them? I started making content for them 2019. Yeah, something like March 2019. So three years later after I started. Yeah, that's a really cool progression to go from being like active or a member and, and learner <laughs> to the point where they're like, hey, you should be making stuff for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was pretty cool. I remember the feeling I had at the time. I was, I was really proud of achieving that because I sort of grew up in right once. So when I had the the opportunity to become an instructor for the site, I felt I felt really proud of myself because that that was where I, I got all my poker knowledge and it felt good to be there, sharing my knowledge with other people that could be in the same position as, as myself. Is there anything that you could point to as kind of like your your philosophy as a teacher or like what what sets you apart from other instructors or kind of how, how do you look at the game maybe that's a little bit different from um, from other people? Yeah, I think I am relatively unique in the sense that I combine very well theoretical understanding with exploitative approach. I don't find many coaches that have this sort of hybrid approach to the game. I see many, many people nowadays that are really focused into theory and GTO, I would say most people. And then there are a few, uh, I'm not sure what the word for them is, but like there's a a few people that focus more on the exploitative side of the game and they are very polarizing characters because I think the book industry has accustomed itself to just care about GTO. And then when, when someone comes with exploitative ideas, they're either going to be loved by, by people or they're going to be hated. So apart from a few exploitative coaches that I can, that I can think of, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm one of the only that can put two things into perspective, take the GTO approach, which I love. I'm very fascinated by theory, but I also spent many years studying population tendency. So I think I combined that into my teaching very well. And that's what allowed me to build my business and to be an instructor for one at once. And then later for GTO wizard, I think my capacity to combine both things very well is, is is something that sets me apart. 
Yeah, I, I would love to hear more about what the studying population tendencies looks like, because I, I had the idea back when I was a more serious, I, I mostly play tournaments now, but when I was a more serious cash game player and playing online, this is like pre-Black Friday uh, for me, but um, you know, you'd have this big database of, you have all these hands, you're playing against the same people and a poker tracker, of course, gives you literally like thousands of stats that you could mm -hmm. could look at. And I, I knew that there should be something there, but I could never quite figure out like what exactly should I be looking at in all of this? Like what are the, the important stats to be paying attention to? So if you could talk a little bit about like, what are the, um, yeah, like how, how do you, how do you filter through all that? And what's like the most important things to, to pay attention to from a, a population read standpoint? So the process is relatively straightforward. If you think about it, the idea is just to compare what humans do with GT what, what GTO does. So essentially you want to see, are there gaps between a GTO performance and a human performance? If those gaps exist, then you want to find ways to exploit those gaps and develop kind of strategies that can extract EV from the existence of those gaps. So the process is essentially gathering and building data about what GTO performance looks like, then gathering and building data about what real performance of human performance is like, and then you want to compare both and then find those gaps. So in the beginning, I was really, really rudimentary with it. I would just use like normal trackers that you can find. But then later I found out hand to note, not sure if you guys use it or have heard of it. It is a poker tracking software designed specifically to study population tendencies with large databases, like databases with millions of hands. And then after I discovered hand to note, this was like 2017, I think. Yeah, late 2017. I have been using it since then to, to build data on population and then find these gaps. And it might sound like it's too complicated, but it's not. And I, I don't understand to this day how it's not more common in poker because in every other industry that I can think of, at least, uh, businesses make money off understanding human behavior for that particular industry. So if we talk about marketing, people are going to study how what's the human behavior in marketing, how people react to polls, how people react to campaigns, what's their clicking behavior, what's their uh, buying behavior, do they buy if they click this, if they do they watch if they see this type of video. So it's all about- This data. is like why Mark Zuckerberg is a billionaire. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like in most good businesses, they use data to improve their profitability, to increase their margins. And in poker, we've kind of like accustomed ourselves with just caring about our own strategy and playing theoretically sound. But what about what other people are doing? Are they really playing very close to GTO? Are they balanced? And if they're not, how can we exploit those tendencies? So that's what made sense to me. I'm a very like data-oriented guy since the beginning. And when I saw that population was not coming close to GTO performance, I was like, man, I need to, I need to go deep on this. I need to understand exactly how people are deviated from GTO so that I can make the most money. And that's that's what I've been my my approach since then. I have actually been throughout these years, it, it was not always like this. I was not always a hybrid. I started very exploitative, then then I reverted to like 100 percent GTO and then Let's say last three years, I would say I've been really, really hybrid with playing GTO whenever I feel like that's the right thing to do, but also not closing my mind or my eyes to exploitative opportunities whenever I find them. So that's my my philosophy. 
So if, if you were to notice something like, um, I'm just curious if this, this even is the process, you know, people are overfolding to flop check raises, you know, is, is mm-hmm. that the level of specificity or is it kind of, okay, well then I need to figure out like which flops are they overfolding to, which sizes are they overfolding to, which positions yeah. are they overfolding in? Like, how, how do you decide when you've reached the right level of, of granularity? Uh, I, I would say it depends on your your level of curiosity and uh, desire to embrace the grind because it is a sort of grind <laughs> and it can get really specific. Like it can get to the point where you have to filter for what size villain. And I'm talking about the example you gave, like flop check raises. Mm-hmm. You have to filter for what size your opponent used in the flop and then what exact size you use to check raise in the flop and then seeing what's their folding frequency versus that check raise size and then run the aggregated reports on solvers to see what's exactly the folding frequency for that size and sequence, and then finding the gaps. And then you can go deeper than that and see, okay, what are the specific board textures that I want to look into? Maybe I want to group these textures, like let's say Jack's XX rainbow, and I want to see how population is varying on those types of textures relative to GTO. So it can get very, very specific. Um, I don't recommend like starting out so specific. I recommend just doing more like general lines, lines that you can build more data on more quickly. For example, like just see how people respond to river bats in general. Like you don't have to filter for specific lines. Just see every time someone faces a bat on the river, how often they fold, and then try to build from there your intuition. Because yes, it can get very specific real quickly. And I think at certain point you don't get as much more benefit from going more specific. There's a point in which you kind of figure out, okay, humans behave like this. Like this is their sort of overall tendency. They they fast play a little bit more value than solver. That's something I've come to understand after my studies all of these years. People fast play a little bit more value than solver. People don't tend to bluff catch as much as solver, particularly in bigger pods. And then once you understand these overall tendencies, like you could go deeper if you wanted to, but I think there's a lot of diminishing returns at that point. Like you could go really, really deep, but the returns you would get would probably not be um, the best use of your time. But like knowing how people tend to deviate from theory is a huge, huge benefit in my opinion. You can you can make deviations in the exploit population in almost all nodes by just understanding how they tend to deviate from solver in most spots. Yeah, and the the example that you used of like overfold into rivers is an interesting one, right? Because I mean, obviously the the first exploit there is just well, you want to bluff more rivers, but then if you uh-huh. recognize, well, now I'm anticipating profitable river bluffs, then you also have more incentive to bet turns, knowing that yes. those profitable river bluffs are are coming. So this kind of thing like cascades all the way down the the game tree. Yes, exactly. And I've done some mathematical models that show like that you can expand your your pre-flop RFI just based on how much fold equity you're going to get on further streets. So mm-hmm. it, it can get very complex. And uh, the idea is to find an approach that makes sense for you and that is also comfortable for you because max exploit strategies are actually really hard to execute for a long time correctly because poker is obviously a game of, of people and there's no sites with screen names and HUDs and statistics. And eventually people are going to catch up to the fact that you are exploiting them somehow. And then you enter this dynamic where people are adjusting to you and then you're readjusting back and then you're readjusting. And there are not many people that can play this game of adjustment very well. 
most people, they eventually crack and they make a big mistake trying to adjust and then readjust and then adjust. So there, there are levels to exploitation. This is also something that I feel is not very well understood in the community. Like people think that if they want to exploit, like they need to max exploit. And that's not true. You can take many levels of exploitation. You can you can do some minimal exploits. You can do maybe some some exploitation that only favors certain vortexes, and in the others you play quasi balanced or pseudo GTO. So there are multiple levels that you can approach this, and I think you have to figure out what you're comfortable with, and then and then go with that. The way that I often present this, and I'm, I'm curious because I think you you uh, are, are more studied on this than I am, is um, at least for the for those first order exploitations to focus on the mixed strategies. You know, the the places mm -hmm. where I guess what Ori Pelic would call like the frequency mistakes versus mm -hmm. the fundamental mistakes, and to think of when you're looking at a solver output to think of the mixed strategies as judgment calls, where it's kind of like okay, it, this hand can play as like a call or a ray. And against the sort of theoretically correct opponent, it might be important to hit a, hit a certain frequency. But um, against a person who you think is is not playing perfectly, you would often be better off just trying to guess which sort of mistake they're going to make and predict which play is is going to be better against that person. Exactly, and that's that's an extremely good approach, in my opinion. And I think it's the approach that most of the great players use. I think most of the great players they are extremely good in theory they're also going to be willing to deviate sometimes exploitatively. And a good way to do that is by shifting mixed strategies, because when you shift mixed strategies, first of all, it's not going to be immediately obvious to your opponent that they're getting exploited by you. Because even if the hand goes to showdown, they're just going to see a hand that is standard to be played that way at a certain frequency. So it's really hard. It's really hard for people to realize they're getting exploited, and it's really easy for you to execute. You already have a theoretical understanding that that's a mixed strategy, so you just shift it to something more aggressive or more passive, depending on what you think your opponents are doing. So I think that's a, that's a really great approach. It has some limitations, like it's probably not a good idea to do that. For example, in a small blind versus big blind CBAT node where every single hand is mixed. So if you shift all mixed strategies, then you're either just CBAT entire range on all boards or checking entire range on, on all boards because every single hand is a mix. But in almost all the other situations, this is going to be a, a good approach in my opinion. It strikes me as something that will be pretty valuable on later streets because in order for your opponent to realize that you are unbalanced in this spot, as long as you're, you know, uh, leaning one way or the other in a uh, mixed strategy, it takes uh, a decent sample size for them to know that, okay, he's supposed to be doing this half the time, but he's actually doing it 90% of the time. Like if we're talking about a pre-flop decision or like you said, blind versus blind, um, mm -hmm. that comes up more often. But if we're talking about like a, river check raise uh it takes yeah. more it takes longer to get you know a decent sample size at that node to determine if someone's unbalanced or not so you can probably get away with those type of exploits for a long time exactly exactly and that has been my philosophy for the last few years where i feel like exploratory play is extremely good on rivers it's pretty decent on turns and maybe it's not so great on flops because it makes your strategy a bit too obvious in the beginning, I used to use a lot of exploitative plays on flops, and I created what we call a blueprint strategy for students, private students in, in my staking company. 
And we used to crush with that strategy, but eventually it became a little bit obvious. And then we shifted towards an approach where exploitative plays more, we, we focus more on river spots because of the exact reason you mentioned. And then there are plenty of turn spots where this happens as well, particularly turn spots where it also doesn't happen very often, like uh, the lacy bat and three bat pots or four bat pots. So all that kind of stuff I think is really safe for you to go with with exploits. And then on the flop, I like, I have an, uh, an approach of just being a little bit more balanced, not just for the sake of not being obvious with my strategy, but also because it makes you get to later streets with a more solid range and then you can control your frequencies better. So overall, I would say the earlier you are, probably the less you want to do heavy exploits. And then as you go, as you progress through the streets, then it starts to become more interesting and also more valuable to apply exploitive strategies. Yeah, I'm thinking this is kind of like the inverse of what we talked about before, where you know, a, a mistake on the river can have cascading effects where like you're incentivized to do different things on the earlier streets. But the, the mm -hmm. flip side of that is it's very hard to, even if you knew, for instance, that your opponent like overfolds to to check raises or something, it's kind of unclear. Like it's hard to point and when you're looking at a sovereign and say like, this is the reason why that hand check, like obviously some hands benefit more from fold equity than others, but like those hands are also in the check raise range because of things they're going to do on later streets or you know that you want to be able to show up with flushes on certain runouts and have blockers on certain runouts. And just like those hands, mm -hmm. there, there's no one reason why a hand is check raising. Like our, our human brains can simplify that and like call it a check raise bluff or something. But like mm -hmm. if the, the reasons why hands are doing something or like where that value comes from on an early street is like distributed across all of the different nodes of you know what's going to happen on, on later streets and so it's kind yeah. of hard on on an early street to like understand what are going to be the cascading effects of um for you of, of deviating too far from the equilibrium yeah absolutely it's definitely not immediately obvious it it requires uh, a lot of research and then some mathematical models to really get down to what would be the exact best max exploit strategy. But as I said, I don't even think that's the best approach. So focusing on rivers, I think is is a very good way of not passing up the insane amount of EV that there is from exploiting population at the same time, not making your strategy too obvious to the point that people can easily counter you. How specific do you think these population tendencies are to, you know, like, is this something where you have population tendency for your NL, NL 50 students and your NL 100 students and your NL 200 students or even across different sites? Like, do you think these are more kind of universal characteristics of of human psychology or do you think these are kind of quirks of how people are playing at, at different stages and in different environments? I think most sites in most stakes are going to exhibit the same patterns of, of population deviation relative to theory. And then some sites, some stakes may differ a little in the magnitude of those tendencies. Mm -hmm. So one example I can give, and that's actually a little counterintuitive, is how population tends to overbluff rivers. Like if you tell someone playing low stakes that most regulars and most recreationals overbluff at low stakes, they might say that you're crazy. Like I posted, I posted a YouTube video where I showed myself calling down against some recreationals on the river. And a lot of people got really shocked. Like, how can you do that? Recreationals don't bluff and all that stuff. That, that is my reaction right now. <laughs> really? <laughs> awesome. So this is going to be an awesome podcast. So like, this is what I used to hear as well. When I started, like, no, you can't call fish in the river. Like they don't bluff or 
low stakes players are are more needy, so they don't bluff enough and all this stuff. And when I started research population tendencies, one of the first things that I noticed was that everyone was over bluffing everywhere. And I was like, oh my God, that's that's really sick. And it seems like no one is talking about that. And to this day, there's almost no one talking about that because I don't think almost anyone is studying these things. It seems like the community doesn't have much interest in, in studying these things and they, they go unnoticed, but it is a fact. And the reason for it, I, I could name many, but one of the things about playing good balanced poker is that you need to randomize your plays. Like if you get to the river and you don't randomize your bluffs, you're going to over bluff. Like that's 100% guaranteed because you, you're going to get to the river and you're going to see that 40% of your bluffs need to be randomized to some fraction of the time. And if you don't have the ability to do that, or if you don't do that at all, which is the case for most people, you're going to end up over bluffing, even if you play your value uh, too, too aggressively. So that's one thing that happens across all the stakes. And counterintuitively, what you see is that high stakes is a little bit less over bluffed than lower stakes, which is might seem counterintuitive. You, you can think of like, oh, high stakes players are so aggressive. How come they're not over bluffing more? But then if you think about it, it makes sense because high stakes players are much, much better at controlling their frequencies, randomizing their plays correctly, constructing their ranges in a better way. And they also can expect their opponents to be better at bluff catching. So they're going to be less, let's say, incentivized to run too aggressive bluffing frequencies. So that's something that I've found in population tendency that if I had never studied it, I would never guess that. Like I would never guess that almost every one of her bluffs and that high stakes is a bit less over bluffed than lower stakes. So that's the beauty of researching these type of things that you can find some, some, uh, some information, some knowledge that is really counterintuitive that only by seeing the data that you can actually, actually trust it. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, even now I'm kind of like that. I feel like that doesn't accord with my experience at all. Um, <laughs> and I don't like, I certainly, you know, like would trust numbers over, over my own experience, but it is still like when I'm confronted with that, I'm like that, that <laughs> really does not accord with my experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I get I, it. I would I would ask, is this true across the board or is it on particular runouts where there's just a lot of available bluffs? So there's a clear pattern that we see, at least according to regulars. Recreationals, they overbluff almost everywhere because they play static ranges. Like if you take a look at how recreationals play online, you see that the when they play the big blind, for example, they cold call the same range versus CTG that they cold call versus the button. So they just basically look at their hand and they play and they decide whether they want to play that hand or not. When we look at regulars, regulars don't tend to overbluff much in tie positions. So like UTG and hijack, most post-flop lines are close to balance, maybe slightly overbluffed, maybe slightly underbluffed. But then when you start looking at cutoff button and small blind, and then also big blind, you start to see more tendencies of overbluffing. So for regulars, it's it's a very significant function of how wide their preflop range is. And then also it has a lot to do with the, what at least we call in our private training program, the difference between continued aggression lines and discontinued aggression lines. So a discontinued aggression line would be a line in which there's a check in the middle. So for example, a bad check, bad line. So in these lines, we observe that overbluffing frequencies are much bigger than continued aggression lines. And one of the reasons we can assign for that 
is that people are going to have way more air when they place a check in the middle of the hand relative to when they just fire three streets. So we observed that in late formation spots, so cutoff button, small blind, big blind, and also discontinued aggression lines, people are overbluffing really significantly. And then when they start with more continued aggression lines, or if they start being aggressive from tie positions, then you see less of that effect. But overall, across the board, it's it's more bluff than not. I imagine part of says to me. Part of what Carlos is probably driving at, because he's he's the one who phrased this to me, is um, there are some situations where, in order to hit the appropriate bluffing frequency, you have to bluff with hands that you might consider counterintuitive or you would have had to have made a play on an earlier street like called the flop with a hand that wouldn't be an intuitive call and so like i I think one tendency is maybe the people if they check and call a flop bet from the big blind um they're more likely to have a medium strength hand than than they should be like people as you said like they they don't slow play their their value quite enough they they tend to check raise their value i also think people are less comfortable with my sense and again we're we're on my experience which maybe does not accord with you with the data but um, (laughs) that uh people are are more comfortable check raising like if they have a bad hand they'll check raise it as a bluff but they're they're less comfortable check calling with it and so Mm -hmm. the you know once you do check behind the turn for them to then like bet the river, they might just not have, like, even if they wanted to bluff a lot there, they might not have the hands that they're supposed to have in that uh, scenario to enable them to, to make those bluffs on, on you know, some runouts, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so how does, how does this uh, interact? Like this is um, a kind of data that you're like distributing across your, Actually, let's just talk about the, the the stable in general. How did you get started mm-hmm. with, um, you know, now you said you've got like 200 people that you're staking, but yeah. how, how did you get into that? So it started in 2019. I had, I had about 14, maybe 13 clients as my private students. So I had a private coaching program and I had about 12, 13 students. And at that time, I had two students that were starting to play, I think, 100 now. And they had already finished the classes with me, but we stayed in contact and we developed a friendship. And a friend of mine, who is today my partner in my company, he said, what if we stake them to play higher? Like they had classes with you. They're clearly good. Perhaps they would they would agree to get staked and start playing a bit higher and it would be win-win for both. And I was like, yeah, I think that makes sense. Why not? Let's let's offer it to them and, and see what they say. And they they both snap called. So those were my our first two clients uh, as staking. And then I started offering that to my other clients that had finished the classes with me. So I started offering, hey, would you like to get staked? We had the classes. I'm pretty sure you're good. And by staking you, I can put you to play higher stakes. And it's a win-win for both of us. And almost everyone agreed. So, like in a month or two, we already we were already staking like ten players, and then from that, the business started to grow. We started to get recognition from other people and started to offer that to people that we knew from the community. And I think by the end of 2019, we already had about 20 people getting staked. And from there, it was you know. Uh, we had to, me and my partner always say that we had to sacrifice a little bit of our own personal careers to grow the business. 
but it was totally worth it because you know in four years now we're already staking 200 players we completely transformed the landscape of cash games here in brazil it's something really really sick because if you look at our company right now we're putting like 30 guys to play 200 now whereas when we started like five years ago we were kind of the only ones there there were maybe like one or other two brazilians playing those stakes and nowadays we alone are staking 30 players at those stakes so it was really sick developments from our part and it just started by staking two of our friends that's how it began so it's like it's specifically brazilians that you're no uh, no mostly we have i think we have like 80 percent brazilians and 20 percent foreigners we have people from the uk we have people from australia we have from ireland we have from uh, france we have from austria yeah but we have 80 80 percent of our contracts are brazilian players and 20 percent of rest of the world see i think this may be the answer to our confusion uh from the previous conversation if your data so I guess this is a question. Um, is any of the data that you've gathered developed against American tournament players? American <laughs> tournament players? No. <laughs> no. Okay, that's why. That's why you, that's why you say people overbluff. Uh, the, the players that Andrew and I are used to playing against are these American tournament players, and they we tend to think they don't overbluff, but when you mention, you know, 200 NL outside of the U S uh, from all these various countries that you, your, your horses are from um, uh, now, it makes sense. Those, those games are completely foreign to me and probably Andrew's recent experience uh, completely foreign to him at this point as well. They are, but he yeah. still has me a little shook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are big differences between let's say, Cash game online, which is my focus, focus on my company, and tournaments online, those are really two different things. And also online play and then live play, for example. I would imagine that live play significantly less bluff than online play for a few reasons, psychological and, and others. And I would imagine that tournament play is also a little bit less bluff than cash games just because of the psychology of busting from the tournament and having or not the option to re-enter and all that stuff and having the prizes and the money pressure. So I think depending on the format, you're going to see different tendencies. What, what I talked about a few minutes ago is mostly, mostly no, entirely comes from a research on online cash games, online no limit cash games. Makes sense. And is, is that the, I mean, I know at this point it kind of makes sense that you're going to specialize in that because of the, the way that you're approaching, but has, has that always been your primary interest? Was there ever a time when you were like dreaming of winning the main event? <laughs> That's the weird thing about me. Like I was never interested in playing tournaments. I'm not sure why I was like, since the beginning hooked to cash games and tournaments never, never drew my attention. I remember that. Well, I guess it was probably because of the people that I was to watch. Like I was really into watching Phil Ivey play, Toned One play. So I guess that's why I never got really interested in tournaments because they were my my references and they were crushes in primarily in cash games. I know Phil Ivey also played a lot of tournaments, but primarily known for his ability in cash games. So I, I never was really interested in, in tournaments. Now as a as an entrepreneur, I have perhaps a little bit of more interested in it by staking tournament players, but playing myself, never, never a big fan, I would say. 
logistically with working with the um all the people that you stake i mean i imagine there were like new skills that you had to acquire in order to uh, i mean obviously like business skills in general but also just for what what did you have to learn in order to uh to run a stable you know what are some things that like surprised you or um just like new skills you had to acquire in order to do that oh man many things <laughs> many things i think the biggest challenge for me was the human part and uh i need to elaborate on that i was always sort of a lone wolf let's say i think due to how i was raised and also my personality i was always someone who would do things by myself so i would study by myself get better by myself improve by myself play by myself and then all of a sudden i had this business with another person my partner zio shout out to him that was and is completely different for me. And then we had to start, you know, raising this baby together. Like business is, is very <laughs> similar to, to a relationship. And I am married, I have two kids. And there are many, many similarities between running a business with a partner and raising a family. So you have this other person who's completely different than you, but you have to find a way to raise this baby together, this business. And this business is going to have values, it's going to have goals, it's going to have metrics, it's going to have all these little things that you have to agree on these other, with this other person. What is the path that you're gonna take? And we we didn't always agree. Like, in fact, we, we'd, almost, we'd almost always disagree. And it was really hard for me because I never had, I never had to, do things with someone else and make things work with someone else apart from my relationship, which was always very nice and easy. And, and then specifically working with someone that is so different than me, it was a real challenge. So stuff like compromising and finding a middle ground. I was always someone like really, con, uh, really, uh, what's the word for it? Like certain of my ideas and my convictions. And, you know, that was the hardest part for me, for sure knowing when to give in, knowing when to give space to the other person, knowing to not only talk, but also listen and do things together and not just do things by myself and say, here, here are the results, see what I did. No, construct things together, build things together from scratch. That's definitely the, the biggest learnings that I've had so far. And, and it's been great for me because I've always been good at doing things and learning things, but you know, uh, collaborating with other people, growing with other people, learning from other people. It's not something that I had exercised before. And since we started the company together, that has absolutely been my my biggest development in life for sure. So compromising, is that the word you were looking for? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, compromising. Yeah. What about for working with the the people that I mean because you're you're coaching them also, right? The, mm -hmm. the people that you're staking? Yes, yes. I mean, we today we have a board of instructors. So we have like, I think at this point we have six or seven instructors in the team. So I only coach the top tier players. That's players that play 500 and above. So I coach those. But everyone else is coached by the board of instructors. But coaching has always been very easy for me. I've always been the, the person that teaches his friends, you know, like at school, people would come to me like, oh, I don't understand the subject. Can you can you explain it to me? And I would be the one who, who would teach them. I would, for example, when I was a teenager, I had a social project where I would teach 
math and English in weekends for free to people of my neighborhood. So teaching was always very easy to me. It came naturally to me. And it's something that is easy to do from a from a human perspective, because everything that you do is revolved around the topic being thought, you know? So it's not like you, you're building this, this intimate relationship with this person. It's mostly just you bringing a topic you have expertise on and making sure that this other person in the other end uh, can absorb that content. So from that perspective, coaching has always been, been very, very easy for me and, I've always had excellent feedback from from people that I've coached. But when it came to management and decisions and building like plans, that was the the hardest part for me. <laughs> I laugh. I laugh because in my past life I was a math teacher and <laughs> afterwards when I stopped teaching, I did tutoring for a while and Tutoring was more of what you experienced as a coach, where it was just about the content and mm-hmm. you had a a student that was uh, willing and ready. And if not, you can just choose not to take their money. But mm-hmm. when I was a teacher, you have to deal with all the students that you're uh, presented with. They didn't pay for it and they also don't want to do it. And so, mm-hmm. you, you, so that's when, as a teacher, I had to kind of like, manage human relationships more and mm. to get get the students to want to learn the thing I was teaching them. So I kind of laugh. I kind of laugh when I hear <laughs> you talk about the difference between um, coaching uh, willing students and then managing humans in, in your business. It's like the difference between being a tutor and, a, and, and being a, a public education teacher. Makes complete sense. Yeah, with coaching, like the person coming to you is the the biggest interest that you know they're willing to pay you money to hear what you have to say so it's really really easy like the person literally wants to spend an hour hearing what you have to say about poker so it's really really easy i've always been someone who studied a lot so i was always prepared to to my coachings and to pass on knowledge to other people so that was always easy but then when when the relationship part comes into place that's what i had to learn the most i'm still learning a lot but nowadays I'm much, much better than I was in the, in the beginning. I will I will pay you a compliment on a recent video that you released that I watched called uh, You Will Never Lack Reads After This Video. That okay. was a great video that kind of shows um, something that you said earlier, like you said you were kind of a loner before and mm-hmm. you did a lot of things uh, as far as getting better at poker on your own. And sometimes mm-hmm. those type of people those types of people can become like um boring <laughs> but mm-hmm. with your hybrid approach to poker you talked about um uh, starting with being highly exploitative and then moving to highly theoretical and then kind of trying to trying to find a hybrid in the middle and i mm-hmm. see in this video you've kind of done that as well because you're presenting a concept that's like super interesting and fun to other introverted math nerds like myself, where you basically (laughs) use uh, statistics to explain why a player is more likely to be a recreational than a regular based on one um, action they did. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you brought in Bayes theorem and all this nerdy 
boring stuff to like the average uh, person, but then you did it in a fun way where you kind of filmed the video as, you know, as the student and as the teacher, and like you kind of played two roles in it and you made the video fun to watch that kind of gets the attention of people who may not naturally be um, entertained by math like I am. But um, that video was like so amazing. And it took me back to my days in school uh, when I was in college taking statistics classes. And and I forgot how much fun uh, that subject can be. So thank you for that video. Awesome. No, I have to thank you for this for this compliment, this feedback. Really appreciate it. Yeah, YouTube has been has been great only about a month so far in, but it's been amazing all the things that that I'm doing and that I have to learn to, to put out content. So it's really great. I also just really like seeing the innovations or, or just it, it felt to me, I, I'm not really on TikTok, but like I do see TikTok videos. I have some sense of sort of like what the aesthetics of, of TikTok are and the thing of like, playing different parts and like having it's not like a full costume but you know you have like your 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 accoutrements to uh demonstrate like which character you are at, at, at any mm -hmm. given moment it felt like a very sort of um uh tiktok-esque mm -hmm. uh, like that was like the, the the aesthetic of it and i think that that again is like a hallmark of a good teacher to be able to put content into a particular for like obviously you can teach statistics in a lot of different formats and so you know, being able to recognize like this is this is what the young people are doing these days and so like, this is how we present information to them you know it's um i thought that was interesting yeah absolutely like uh, a real challenge that we have today and i think we can we can be in the same group here because we're all content producers in some way is to make content entertaining so that people are going to watch it or, or listen to it and when it comes to youtube and these other platforms you're competing with thousands and thousands of other content that people can watch or listen to so you have to find a way to to make it both um valuable in terms of content like the, the information you're giving but also the package of that information how that information is being presented to the audience so that they feel like oh this is pretty i want to look what's inside so i really give a lot of thought to to the package not just the content these days yeah our, our trick is wearing bathing suits in a hot tub <laughs> <laughs> that might work that might work <laughs> Um, so for you now, I mean, are you, you're still, I know you have like the whole business to run and, and, and whatnot, but I mean, you're, you're still like a competitive person in, in your own right. And like, you know, playing, playing poker pretty seriously yourself. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. So what, what does your studying look like these days? What's like the, the forefront of your understanding? What, what frontiers are you exploring? You mean in terms of strategy? Yeah. Poker strategy. Well, I think that the, well, I can say what I feel like is the best, best use of anyone's time. And my philosophy currently for developing better strategies is something I came up with actually with while I was, while I was giving a coaching class, one of my students, it's uh, one of the students we have in our business that is playing the highest stakes. So this guy plays up to 5k NL with us and, uh, we are always trying to figure out, okay, how can we draw more edge? How can we find more opportunities to generate edge? And at some point, it became became obvious to us that 
in order for someone at already a very high level to generate edge, to, to generate more edge, they should be willing to do something that is very counterintuitive. So for most people climbing up stakes, what they want to do is approximate their play to DTO. Like everyone is doing that, at least in terms of cash games with all the content in the internet. Someone climbing up the stakes from 25 and out today, they're going to be spending their time mostly trying to get better at theory, understanding DTO, like the sizes there, all that kind of stuff. Once you get to a super, super high level, then you start to make things like, like intentionally deviating from solver to put your opponents in situations that they're not prepared for. So it's not like you not, it's not like you don't know what you should do in terms of theory. You know that maybe you should bet let's let's say 75%, 75% pot in this flop. But you willingly deviate from that and maybe you bet 150% pot because you have studied that grid with 150% pot and you know that your opponent didn't. So even though it's a deviation from theory that maybe should cost you EV against a perfect opponent, you know that you're going to generate more edge against someone who is never going to have studied that grid because everyone is looking at 75% pot, not 150%. So the general path I'm, I'm going nowadays is in terms of teaching my highest level students and for myself is finding opportunities where the theoretical cost of a deviation is relatively low, but the potential gain from playing it better than someone who is not prepared can be quite huge. And that's mostly you being able to what we call ramp up standard deviation. So it's basically the idea that the more aggressive you can play and the more tougher spots you can play your opponents in, even if it's not theoretically approved, then it's likely that you're going to have success with it because first, it's really uncomfortable to face aggression. And second, you already established that the theoretical cost is not so big to begin with. So even if someone plays it correctly against you, you're not going to be passing too much EV. So I'm getting real, real advanced and nerdy here, but that's the, no, this, the this approach I've been using. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, I wonder if there's not like a psychological element to that too, where if someone encounters something like that, I mean, they might be able to say like, oh, that, that even if I don't know how to exploit it, like that's a mistake or something. But I could also see someone encountering that and being like, oh shit, is that a thing? Do I need to go study how to bet like 150% bot in this spot? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It fires off some triggers, I would say, in people. But as long as you're doing your homework and you are more prepared than your opponents, then I think it's, it's the right way to go. I wouldn't recommend for someone climbing up stakes and, and doing like... I recommend this to people that are really at a very, very high level. I think it's a good path to to follow. Yeah, my concern, because it, it sounds like so much fun, is that there are going to be people listening <laughs> to this who are just immediately like, oh, yeah, how do I do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely exciting, I would say. It was one of the issues that I had with poker, I would say maybe last year or 2021, I don't remember, where... Like I felt like I knew a lot and the grind stopped being fun. You know, it was just, you know, uh, this board, you know, I've got the size and on that board, I'm going to bet the size and on this river, I'm going to raise this kind of hand. So once you understand theory very well, it, it kind of starts to become like a, a mechanic execution. And then once I, 
I developed this approach. I was like, man, poker is, is fun again because I don't need to be fixed in this execution. I can explore these different lines. I can try to be one step ahead of population. I can play these mind games where what is he going to think that I'm doing and what I'm going to do with what he thinks that I'm doing and all that kind of stuff. So poker all of a sudden became really fun again. And I think that's one of the bigger benefits of this approach as well. It it just basically opens up this whole variety or or this whole opportunity for creativity that is basically endless. Well, and it addresses the thing that people are so you know kind of worried about with with solvers of like what's what's going to become of this game. You know, like once we're at a point, and I mean we're probably extremely close to being there now. Mm-hmm. Of it, we can just have robots doing this. Like they can literally yeah. just like we're already asking the robot what the right answer is. Like why not just have the robot <laughs> do the playing? Um, you know of of sort of like where. Because this is like what, what what people were interested about it, the game in the first place was this whole human element of outplaying people and figuring out what are people doing and adjusting and counter adjusting and I mean that's mm-hmm. like the whole the whole romance of the game. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's tremendously reassuring to to hear you talk about awesome. that still being a thing. Yeah, I hope that this becomes more more discussed and more mainstream. Because to be honest, I'm like a super nerdy guy. I love theory. I love GTO. I've read plenty of books. I've I've studied like countless hours on solvers and I have produced many content material about solvers, but I feel like the community has gone way too far with it. I feel like we have become way too robotic. We, we kind of, we basically forgot that we're playing other humans. It's like everyone is opening up their solver and trying to figure out these frequencies on these super specific spots. And they're just forgetting it on the other side. It's just, another person that you can try to to outplay them to to be creative so i feel like if we do take a step back it will be good for the game it will be good for the community because the game is not just about you know these numbers you see in a solver like these frequencies and the cv and this check raise size and all this stuff it is about you know being creative and trying to outplay outplay other humans and i think if we can move into that direction we don't we don't have to abandoned solvers that's not what i'm saying but i think being a little bit more creative and using solvers to help with that creative part i think that would be great well that's a beautiful note to go out on uh was there anything either you guys wanted to talk about that we haven't gotten around to yet i have one last question um is portuguese your first language yes yes it is When, when, when did you learn english uh, well, it's something that I get asked a lot. I I used to go to a, an English school like once a week, but that, that was not what I got my English from. Basically, most of my English came from watching all the 10 seasons of Friends about six times, I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's that's what I attribute my, my English to. I was really hooked into that. And I don't know, man. When I was 18, I was already fluent in English. That was... That's something that I always get get compliments from. Yeah, it's so good. I could I couldn't tell. I, like I I knew. Okay, so he's from Brazil. So my assumption would be 
Portuguese is his first language, but he <laughs> the, the English is so good. I don't know. I'm gonna have to ask. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, it jumped out at me the, the video that I watched. You were you were trying to remember the word nomenclature, which like, yeah. <laughs> not even a lot of like native English speakers would know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes my friends my friends think I'm joking, but sometimes I'm trying to say a word in Portuguese and I can't remember and and I have to speak English. And they're like, oh, you're joking. Like, come on, Salah. And I'm legit. Like, I don't know this word in Portuguese. I just know it in English. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, anything you want to leave people with in terms of, um, yeah, I guess they can, they can get your content on, um, well, yeah, what, what's your, so you're on um, Run It Once, but what's your YouTube for people who want to uh, see those videos that we were raving about? Yes. Of course, so please, guys, give me some, some. Uh, well, check out my YouTube. It's at Saulo Costa Poker on YouTube, and also on Instagram at uh, Saulo T R Costa. That's my name, Saulo T R Costa. So you can find me there on Instagram. I'm occasionally posting on Instagram, but mostly nowadays on YouTube. So on YouTube, Saulo Costa Poker, you can find me there. I will I will also highly recommend his um uh, coachings on the GTO wizard. They do um several coachings um throughout the month and I've attended um some of the sessions that you've done and some of the other coaches as well. Highly recommend awesome. those. Great stuff. Awesome. Thanks for that. Yeah, thanks. This was an amazing conversation. Thanks for taking the time. No, I have to thank you guys. It's really great and hopefully I can I can be here one more time. That was really nice. I, I think people will be very excited to hear from you again. Yes. <laughs> cool. Thanks. And if guys. they're not, fuck them. I'll be excited anyway. Yeah, me too. <laughs> just bring, please, just let's do some statistics on air. I would love it. I was so happy when I watched that video because I miss I miss being a math student sometimes. So that took me back. I really enjoyed it. That's cool. Thanks, guys. Once again. Okay. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye bye. Tapping on my window pane, feeling faint, feeling ashamed. Spread too thin and hoping for a sin. None for a world that could take away the pain. Sleepless nights, do I need some kind? Devotion of a car, light of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you.